Our God is a God of unlimited light, and he calls us to share that light with others. As we give it away generously, in a paradoxical way, we get brighter. We are blessed by being a blessing, giving time and talents, attention and connection, compassion and kindness, and grace in love. It takes a shift in focus off of ourselves and onto others. It can't be faked or fabricated. It has to be desired. It fills us up, and we can't help but spill Jesus onto those around us. So what would happen if we intentionally pursued a life of living generously? And what would it take to be known for our genuine and extravagant generosity? God has called us to live a life more abundant. And that truly comes when we become generous. The pastor looked at himself in the mirror and he asked himself, how did I get here? How did I get to the point where my heart is as hard and as heavy as a nine-pound sledgehammer. He knew he had been called into ministry 15 years earlier. He, he left a lucrative career, and, and he, could, he could speak, he could lead, he could love well into people's lives, so he thought. He had an academic bent, so seminary worked out really well for him. He could take a very complex subject and make it very, very understandable. So you can see that when he started preaching, he started getting that applause, and that applause started coming and feeling like a drug to him. The more he preached, the more applause he got, and the more he would drop his family at the altar of ministry and sacrifice them for that applause. A family in crisis, he's right there. Someone having a, an issue with their marriage, he's right there. Pastor, thank you so much. You saved my marriage. Pastor, that, that, that sermon was so amazing, it changed my life. And yet he stood looking in the mirror empty. He knew that if he died that evening, right there on the spot, that he would not hear those words from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. He'd hear other words, away from me, for I never knew you. But Jesus, I preached all those sermons, away from me. I never knew you. But Jesus, I saved that man. Oh, you saved that man. Away from me, for I never knew you. Have you ever considered that we can do all these Christian things, yet if they're motivated by the wrong thing, if they're not motivated by the love of Jesus, that we're going to get it all wrong? We can get Christian things right, but get Jesus wrong. It all comes down to the motivation of the heart. What's your motivation? That's what we're going to talk today. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. Living a generous life means nothing if you don't have love. Living a generous life means nothing in the eyes of God if your motivation is skewed if you don't have the love of Jesus. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we hit week two of our series called Generous. It's in this series in which we're looking at a lot of different ways to be generous in our lives. This week, I'm, I'm excited because I get to teach on this thing called generous grace. And here's how we're going to roll today. Uh, today, we're going to take a snapshot out of the Old Testament of what grace looks like. It's one, uh, from one of my biblical heroes, a, a guy named David, uh, a very popular figure in the Bible. And from there, we're going to roll into what it means to be motivated by love. We're going to look at a snapshot out of what's called the love chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
And then what I want to do is I want to get very practical with today's teaching. I want us to get some tools in our hands that we can deal with a divisive culture and a divisive society and as Christ followers be uniters. So that's where we're going to go today. We're going to hang out in 2 Samuel chapter 9 first, then we're going to roll to 1 Corinthians 13. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Let me set the scene for what's going on. 2 Samuel 9 is about a third of the way through your Old Testament for those of you going to old school and opening your Bible. Okay, so go back with me 2,000 years ago. I always want to go back to that point because that's when Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected. He died for our sins. That, was, that is the most important date in the history of mankind. So we go back 2,000 years ago. Now let's go back another 1,000 years. And there's a young teenager. His name is David. He's a shepherd. He's got a dad named Jesse, and he's got a lot of brothers. Now David is a young shepherd, and he's got a king. He lives in Israel, and that king is a guy named Saul. Now, Saul is not a good king. In fact, Saul has incredible character flaws. He's not a man of character. He's not a man of integrity. And God sees this, so God sends a prophet by the name of Samuel to go find David. And Samuel anoints David, king of Israel, as a teenager in private. Shortly after that, David would slay Goliath, drop him like a toilet seat. And then after that, after that, David would become very popular, and he'd realize he has a knack for something. He's got a knack to be a soldier. He's good in combat. He's good with leading. He's a man of courage. He loves God greatly. He loves his country greatly, and he does extremely well. He becomes extremely popular. He has a best friend. His best friend's name is Jonathan, who is also an incredible warrior. They are back-to-back, -back, bows and arrows out. They are thick like this, but there's a problem. Jonathan's dad, well, he's King Saul. And King Saul sees David getting very, very popular. He sees his son hanging out with David all the time, so he decides he's going to kill David. David has to go on the lamb for 15 years. And at the end of that 15-year time frame, Saul and Jonathan, they're in combat against the enemies of Israel, and both of them die. And when both of them die, the palace erupts in a bad way. That's important. We're going to come back to that. So David at that time is now anointed again, a second time, as king of Israel, but Israel's in a civil war. And it would be seven more years before God would squelch the civil war, before there would be peace in Israel, and, and David is secure in his leadership. So think about that. 22 years from the time David is anointed the first time until the time that Israel is at peace. Our story takes place another eight years after that. So 30 years roughly from the time David dropped Goliath. 30 years. And our story picks up today with David in deep thought. And I think David is missing his warrior brother Jonathan. So he asks a very specific question. 2 Samuel 9, verses 1 through 3. Remember, our main point, living a generous life means nothing in the eyes of God if you're not motivated by love. You guys ready? Okay, four of you are awesome. <laughs> Love preaching. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there, is there no one still left 
of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness. Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. Oh, what I love about the Old Testament are their backstories to the stories and backstories to those stories. we got two backstories we got to look at. Here's the first backstory. Remember, Saul and Jonathan are in combat together. They die and craziness breaks out in the palace. Why is that? Well, it's because in that culture and in that time, the king dies. And when the king dies, a new king would come in and he would kill everyone in the palace to secure his power. He'd kill most of the servants, if not all of them. So everybody's running for their lives, and we find out that Jonathan has a son. Later, we'd find out his name is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. At this time, Mephibosheth is five years old when all the chaos breaks out. He's got a nurse. The nurse comes in to pick him up, to take him out of the palace, and as she's running out, she falls on him. She breaks both of his legs. And that's why verse 3 says he's crippled in both feet. He'd be lame for the rest of his life. So now he's a 25-year-old young man, crippled, and he's in hiding for fear of his life. That's backstory number one. Backstory number two goes back to David and Jonathan. As I said, these were warrior brothers, back-to-back, bows and arrows out. They were thick, and they loved each other incredibly, as warrior brothers do who've been through stuff. And so they make an oath to one another, and that's why David says, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So here's what I want us to do. We're going to press pause on this story because we got to go to this, back to this oath. we got to rewind the tape 20 years, and if we write, rewind it 20 years, we find Jonathan and David at the, the, the pinnacle of their lives together as warrior brothers making an oath to one another. Let's look at that oath. 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 and 15. Jonathan is talking to David, and he says, But show me unfailing kindness. Some of your translations may say unfailing love. Like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And then watch this. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So if you would read all those chapters around that, what you would find is that David and Jonathan basically make a blood oath. They say, listen, whoever dies first takes care of the other person's family. Now, I don't know why it took David 20 years to remember that oath, but here's the thing about that oath. That oath was not made out of some weird obligation. That oath was not made out of pressure. That oath was made out of one thing, and it was, a, it was love, a love for God and a love for each other, and that's important in our story today. As I said, what I love about the Old Testament is we've got little tools that we can take out here and there and put in our toolkit. Here's one of them that plays into our story somewhat, and it's this. Your vows have no expiration date. Your, your vows, generally speaking, generally speaking, your vows have no expiration date when they're made out of love. Now, that could be a whole sermon in and of itself because there are some vows that we make out of anger. There's some vows that we make in times of uh, distress. That's a totally different thing. The ones that are made out of love, they generally have no expiration date. So David is going to live out his vows. Here's what's interesting. David is known as a man after God's own heart. And what I find interesting about the whole story, because this whole story of David and Mephibosheth that we're going to see when when Mephibosheth is in his mid-20s and what's going to happen next... Right after this, David, a man after God's own heart, is going to sleep with one of his greatest warrior's wives. Her name is Bathsheba. The other warrior is a guy that's got shared mud and blood with David, who's, who's supposed to be a close friend. His name is Uriah the Hittite. 
And to cover up that sin, David would kill off Uriah the Hittite. He'd kill off several Israeli soldiers to cover it up. And then God calls him out on it. And here's why, two reasons why I think David is known as a man after God's own heart. Reason number one is David, when he's called out on it, he owns it. He doesn't blame anyone. He owns that he did what he did. He repents, he tries his best to make amends, and he receives the earthly consequences for those sins. And he understands that he has grieved God's heart. That's the first reason why David's a man after God's own heart. He's righteous in that sense. He shows us how to repent. But the second reason, the second reason is what he does with this young man named Mephibosheth. Psalm 112 verse 6 says that the righteous will be remembered forever. And what David does, what David does is why he's remembered as a righteous man. So back to our story. David and Jonathan make this oath. Now fast forward 20 years. Again, I don't know why it took David so long to remember this oath. So David's talking to this guy named Ziba who used to work for Saul. And Ziba says, yeah, Jonathan's got a kid. He's crippled in both feet. So they continue the conversation. 2 Samuel 9 verse 4. David says, where is he? That's Mephibosheth. The king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. The house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Names mean something in the Old Testament. And that name Lodabar is very, very important. It means the barren place. And it's a place in the middle of nowhere. That's where, that's where this young man Mephibosheth is in hiding. It's, there's a reason why it's in the barren place, because he doesn't want to be found out. But it's also symbolic for the pain and the trials and the difficulties that we go through in our lives. Because every single one of us are going to go through our own personal load to bar, our own personal barren place over and over and over because we live in this fallen world. Places of abuse, physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual abuse. Places of addiction in which you're, you, you get on the wagon, you're doing well, and then you relapse and you hit the rock bottom. And then you get, you get some counseling and you're back on, and then you hit rock bottom again when you relapse. And you're like, this will never end. It's your own personal low to bar. Places of moral and ethical failures in which you've got to live out those sins on this side of eternity, the consequences of those sins. Places of great loss loss of dear friends, loss of family members, places of illness when you're too young to have that illness, places of grief. All of us will go through our own personal and painful load to bars throughout our lives. And here's the thing, when we do, when we do, we have two choices. Choice number one is we can hang on to Jesus and trust Him that he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, especially when you're in your own personal load to bar. We can't even hear him. We don't even know what's going on, but we say, okay, I don't get it, I don't like it, but I'm going to hang on to you and I'm going to trust you. Or we can say, you know what, jam it, Jesus, I want nothing to do with you. If you're such a good God, why are you doing this to me? Folks, all the people I've had the, the great fortune of walking with in times of suffering, the ones who have decided in those difficult times just to hang on to their faith and hang on to Jesus. At some point in their lives, they get some healing in their hearts. The ones who say, jam it, I want nothing, nothing to do with you, never can truly move forward. And here's the thing about our own personal load of bars. When we're sitting in that point and we're sitting in that place that's so difficult, that barren place, we need someone to extend generous grace. We need someone to, to just sit with us 
that ministry of presence. We need someone just to put their hand on our shoulders because there's something about the touch of someone out of love, right? And we need someone to breathe that spiritual oxygen when we're going through our own personal loaded bars. I was thinking about the creation account as I was putting this teaching together. And as I was thinking about it, in the creation account, God speaks and everything comes into being. You know, you got, He speaks and there's light. He speaks, there's a universe. But when it comes to us, it's His touch and His breath, His spiritual oxygen that brings us to life. And that's what He calls on us to do as generous grace givers. Back to Mephibosheth. He's in the middle of nowhere. He is in Lodabar, he is in hiding, he's in the barren place. And David has a choice to make right here. He can say, hey, Zeba, thanks for your interest in national defense. I appreciate the info. Have a nice day. And it's a done deal. Nobody knows about his oath. But as I said, what David does next as he lives out his vows is why I think he's a man after God's own heart. Let's keep going. Verses 5 and 6. So King David had him, Mephibosheth, brought from Lodabar, the barren place, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. So David sends for Mephibosheth, and here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, hey, meth boy, ouch, those feet, wowzers. Hey, um, listen, you're in a place far away. I'm not going to kill you. I know the culture says I got to kill you. I'm not going to do that. So have a nice day. We're good, right? He could do that. He could say, okay, you're living in this barren place. Here's here's some cash, and we're good, we're done. Let's call it a day. He does not do that. First and foremost, he calls him by name, Mephibosheth. Names mean something in the Old Testament. And, And what's comical about this is Mephibosheth's name means he who scatters shame. And it's like, God, I don't know if you're up on current events here, but Mephibosheth is not going to be scattering anyone's shame anytime soon. I mean, he's a cripple, so in that society, he's a social outcast. He's going to be a beggar the rest of his life, or he's going to be depending on someone to take care of him. He's a political outcast. As a political outcast, that means somebody wants to kill him with political ties. That would be the king. He has no hope. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. He has no hope until a king steps down from his throne and gets in the dirt with him. The king, out of love, out of a love of God and out of a love for Jonathan, steps down from his throne, motivated by love, and he scatters Mephibosheth's shame. Let's keep going, verses 7 and 8. David says, Don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. Then look look what he's going to do. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Don't be afraid. For the sake of your father Jonathan, I'm going to adopt you as my own son. For the sake of your father Jonathan, I'm going to live out my vows. For the sake of your father Jonathan, you are my kid now. You are going to eat at my table. What if? Speculation here, speculation. But what if David... When he's saying that thing, you know, you will eat at my table, what if something pops into his mind? And it was a handful of verses he wrote when he was going through his own personal low to bar, when he had to choose God as he was surrounded by enemies. And he said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me 
the presence of my enemies. You see, for Mephibosheth, David was an enemy up to that time because he thought David was going to come kill him. But David says, no, man, you're, you're going to live with me now. For 20 plus years, Mephibosheth had been living under the stigma as a cripple. Now he'd be living under the roof of a king, as the son of the greatest king of all time when it comes to Israel. The barren place is exchanged for a banquet table. For Mephibosheth, the, the flood of suffering was met with an abundance of grace. The flood of suffering was met with an abundance of grace. It's all about that grace, about that grace, grace, grace. Let's talk about grace because that's one of those words that we kick around all the time in religious circles. So when it comes to grace, here's the way I look at grace. Grace is God blessing us instead of cursing us as our sin deserves. So God gives us this treasure, Jesus. And with that treasure, Jesus, we have his grace. Grace has three parts to it. Part number one is that grace is free. It doesn't cost us anything. It's not a loan. God's not going to knock on the door and say, hey, pay back that grace. Come on, I want it back now. So it's free. But it also comes at a very, very high price, a high price to the giver. It would cost Jesus his life to go to the cross, to take on our sin, and to be crushed on the cross so that God could pour out his grace on us. And then last but not least, it's permanent. God doesn't give us a whole lot of grace on those days that we're really knocking it out of the park. And then those days when we biff it, he doesn't pull that grace back. It's permanent. So think about David and Mephibosheth. For Mephibosheth, that grace was free. David steps down from his throne and he just touches Mephibosheth and says, man, you're part of my life now. Mephibosheth could do nothing for David. He's broken. He has no hope. He has to have his shame scattered. And now he's got the king saying, you're mine. It came at a great cost for David, though, because think about this. David had to create space in his life for Mephibosheth. He didn't just throw him the bag of money and say, have a nice day. He brought him into his family. And I guarantee you, his kids who are sitting around the table, all of them are good-looking kids according to Scripture, looked at little Mephibosheth like pigs looking at a wristwatch when he comes clump, clump, clumping in going, what is this guy doing here? The culture of David's time said, kill him. The God of David's heart said, love him. David creates space for Mephibosheth. And with that space, he shows his love. He's motivated by love. And then last but not least, for Mephibosheth, that, that grace would be permanent. If you'd continue reading on this story, you'd find that Mephibosheth later, one of David's sons, Absalom, uh, ends up trying to overthrow his dad. And, and it could be that Mephibosheth betrayed David, yet David never withdrew that grace. So let's give a good definition of grace. A good definition of grace, and it, for me at least, is grace is God's favor towards the unworthy. God's favor towards the unworthy. And we don't like to hear that. We don't like to hear that we're unworthy of God's grace, but He's God and we're not. You know, the, the world wants to let us know, you are you and you are great and you don't need to change. Everything's good. Be the best you you can be. And God's saying, wait a second, No. Because God's saying, last time I checked, you do things you don't want to do, and you don't do things you're supposed to do. So he gives us Jesus for one reason. It's love. 
It's love. You know, I always say, if you get anything out of this teaching, get this. Actually, if you get anything out of this teaching, get this. Jesus loves you. He loves you so much, he went to the cross to be crushed because he wants that relationship. It all comes back to the cross. It all comes back to Jesus dying for our sin because we're unworthy. And now, though, now he looks at us and he says, hey, you're no longer Mephibosheth. You have hope. You have a new life. And you have me right by your side as you go through your own personal load to bars. It's all about that grace, grace, grace. So the Apostle Paul, in the great grace phrase of the Bible, says these words, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through what? Help me out faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So it's God's unmerited favor. There's nothing we can do to earn it, but God does it because of his love, his love for you, his love for me. So receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and all of a sudden, you got this Holy Spirit living in you. Isn't it crazy that every single one of us right now could be praying and, and as we're praying different prayers and we're praying to God, He hears all of them because of His Holy Spirit. Isn't it crazy that God right now looks at you and He doesn't see scrap metal, He sees a precious jewel because you got Jesus in your heart. And He gives us now the ability to be grace extenders. We can now become grace extenders. We can bring light to a very, very dark and divided world. He gives us that ability. And our motivation has to be love. Our motivation has to be love. So last week, Pastor Bob kicked off our series. And anytime Pastor Bob kicks off a series, he's going to do a deep teaching to give us that foundation. If you did not get to see last week's teaching, please go to cornwallchurch.com, the media tab, and look at last week's teaching because he gives us a great snapshot of what generous is. He actually gave us a, a really good definition. Generous is a readiness to give more than is strictly necessary or expected. Well, think about that when it comes to generous grace. We're expected as Christ's followers to give more than is necessary or even generally accepted. So last week, Pastor Bob talked about the opposite of generous, and that opposite was greed. Well, think about this. It all comes down to our motivation. Our motivation has to be love. Grace and righteousness, through Jesus, grace and righteousness meet with a holy kiss. And now then we are, are, are needed to love well. We're needed to extend that grace, but here's how we can mess it up. We can be like that pastor I was talking about at the beginning of the teaching, who was doing all those great things, but it was for popularity or it was for prestige. Sometimes we can do things for others based on power. We want to lord it over them. God's saying, no, that's not what love is. So what I want us to do, because now we've got a great snapshot of what grace is in the Old Testament. We see how David was motivated by love. We know what grace is. Now what I want us to do is shift gears, and I want us to look at what that motivation of love looks like. Because remember our main thought, if we're living a generous life without love, it means nothing in the eyes of God. So I want us to go now, fast forward, you know, we're a thousand years before, a thousand years before Jesus, so we go to Jesus' time, 2,000 years ago, about 30 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The Apostle Paul 
writes a letter to the church in Corinth. Actually, he writes three letters to the church in Corinth. One of them is lost. Two of them make it in God's Word. And the church of Corinth is having a really, really hard time. In this first letter, Paul just lays it out to him. He says, listen, you guys are messed up. You're divided, A. B, you've forgotten about Christ and Christ crucified. You don't get that. And lastly, you've forgotten how to love. So two-thirds of the way through the letter, two-thirds of the way through the letter, Paul says, let me tell you what love is. Verses 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love... I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So he's saying you can have all those great things in the world, all those gifts. You can give everything away to the poor, and that may look great, but if you're doing it out of something other than love, it's like a banging gong or cymbal. And that would resonate. That would resonate with the people in Corinth because for the people in Corinth, they lived in a very metropolitan city, all sorts of philosophies, and they were always you know, having all these arguments about the meaning of life and things of that. And they had several pagan temples throughout this very large city. And in the pagan temples, they would worship these little G-gods or goddesses. And here's the way it would work. If you wanted your prayer request answered, you would need to arouse the god or goddesses. There was child prostitution and uh, adult prostitution with male and females in those pagan temples. And if that wouldn't arouse the gods, then you would (laughs) bang on a cymbal, and that would arouse them. And what Paul's saying is, Christians of Corinth, and because God's Word is timeless, Christ followers of Cornwall Church, all those great things you're doing, if they're not motivated by the love of Jesus, they just sound like noise in God's ears. It's just a clanging symbol that means nothing. All the works you do is is noise without love. Then he says those famous words used in weddings, verses 5 through 8. Remember, God's, God's admonishing Corinth. You guys don't know how to love. Let me, t- let me tell you what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, and everybody's like, oh. The little girl walking down the aisle, that's so awesome. But for the Corinthians, this was a kick in the teeth because they don't understand what love is. And what's amazing is not that what, what Paul is describing here, it's who he's describing because he's describing Jesus. Pull out love and put in the word Jesus there. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. He doesn't boast. He's not proud. He doesn't dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Praise God. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. It all comes back to Jesus. Everything comes back to Jesus that we have to do. And it's his love for us that motivated him to to go to the cross. We motivated him to go to the cross, guys. His love 
And that's so amazing. You see, living a generous life without love means nothing in the eyes of God. It's just that banging symbol. So we got a snapshot of what grace looks like with David and Meth Boy. We've got an understanding now that God wants us to do stuff motivated by love. Now let's talk about really getting practical in the last few minutes or so of today's teaching. I want us to get very practical because we are living in the most divisive time in our country since the Civil War. And I believe that God is calling us as Christ followers and calling us as a church to make a dent in that in a positive way. So what I want us to do is I want us to give us a challenge and I want to unpack that challenge. The challenge is this. Our job during this really divisive time is to look, listen, and love. Our job is to look, listen, and love. What do I mean by that? Our job is to bring people towards Jesus through our love, not push them away from Jesus because of our actions and our words. Back in May of 2017, we did a really cool series. It was called Conversations, and and the series was all about different hot-button topics. And on one of the, the weekends... We had a guy named Dr. Preston Sprinkle here, and he made it. It was a solid quote. He said, if we get our theology right, but we love wrong, we're wrong. And what he meant was, we can be Christ followers and hold on to our theological beliefs, but we have to love well too. You don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. So let's talk through that. As grace extenders, God calls on us to have those conversations with people who believe differently than us. We're not just supposed to hang out like a bunch of salt shakers with people of salt. We're supposed to go out and and meet other people. So we need to look, listen, and love. How do we do that? Because it's very, very hard. It's difficult to do. Because as Christ followers, we can often be looked at as the enemy, or worse yet, we'll look at other people who don't believe the same way as the enemy. So first of all, we need to look. We need to look look for commonality commonality, things that we have in common. It's, it's a natural thing for us to look at someone who's different, believes something different from us, and, and we look for the differences, and that causes divisiveness. But no, we look for commonalities. Let me give you some commonalities. First of all, we are all created in the image of God, every single person on this planet. Second thing is we all deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. But Kip, they don't treat me with dignity and respect, so I'm not going to treat them with dignity and respect. But here's the problem with that. That's eye-for-an-eye theology. Let me see, last time I checked, Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Wow, those are the words of Jesus, not mine. Take it up with him. So we're we're told to love well. We, we, We look for commonalities. Everyone's made in the image of God. Let's look for commonalities, and we all want to be treated with dignity and respect. We all have a need for forgiveness. We all want our guilt and shame taken away. So that's the first thing. We have these conversations, and look for something that you have in common. Second thing is, you listen. You listen to their stories. We all have stories. All of us have stories from where we've come from, why we believe what we believe, things that have happened in our lives. Pastor Randy, who I love, he's on our staff here. For those of you who who are new here, um, he's our, our family life counselor, and he's Yoda. I mean, this guy is so wise. And Pastor Randy has this quote that I love. He says, lead with your ears, not your lips. That means when you have these difficult conversations, when you sit down with someone different from you, you listen to their story and you have to expect to be misunderstood. 
Which leads me to the third one. We still love the person despite of that. We still love the person. We create space in our lives for people who are different than we are. And not to fix them, not to use them as a project, but to simply love on them. And here's what we got to do. We can't get ahead of God. We got to let God have His work His way in their lives. And, and God works at His own pace, not ours. So my grandma, she's awesome. She went to be with the Lord years ago. Um, but for 30 years, she was on her knees praying for Ishmael here. Because I was out doing all sorts of stupid stuff for 30 years. So finally, I'm 30 years old, and I'm in a special forces unit jumping out of airplanes. And I'm going, man, I could die. This is not a good thing. And I get it right with Jesus. And, and as I say yes to the dress, and she's like, Kip, come on. I've been praying for you for 30 years. It's about time. She created that space, and I could not outrun her prayers. And that's what God calls on us to do, is we create the space. But here's the rub. You guys are going to be my, my counseling session for me, because I really have a hard time with this one word. It's thrown down our throats all the time, and it's this word called tolerance. And what the world tells us tolerance means is, you agree with me or you're intolerant, and you can't have a healthy relationship with something like that. One of my, my bromance theologians that, I, that, that I, I just love is this guy named Timothy Keller, and he said this about this whole idea of tolerance. It's such a great, I think, Christ follower's definition of what tolerance should be. He said, tolerance is accepting one another despite a difference in beliefs. And it's so true. Tolerance is accepting one another despite a difference in beliefs. Intolerance doesn't mean, okay, you, you disagree with me, therefore you're intolerant. Here's what intolerant is. You and I disagree and I t attack your, uh, your character and I attack your dignity. That's intolerance. God does call us to be tolerant. And that tolerance is we still accept each other as made in the image of God and deserving of dignity and respect. And guys, it's a critical time. A critical time for us as Christ followers. We've got the political season in full force right now. And if you're, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, the, the, the mud is going back and forth. Look at your Facebook posts. Look at your social media posts. Are you accepting one another despite the difference in beliefs? But Kip, you should see what they say. No, no, that's eye for an eye theology. How do you create space in your life for someone who believes differently than you that you can simply walk with and love on? You point them to Jesus, you get let God work in their lives, you become a grace extender. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith. How will we extend that grace?